I love looking out and seeing some are just always ready. Like the minute it gets said, they're, they're, they're going. They're out of the aisle. Yeah, I mean, they're in the aisle. They're out of their seats. I love it. Uh, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 8 and continue in our look at the way that God causes all things to work for good. There are, are two ways in which God causes things to work for good. One is that God supplies good things and those things work for our good. And that's not controversial, right? Uh, nobody really looks at something which is good and says, hey, that's, that's bad. Uh, I think the more common error that we might struggle with is to not notice the good at all, right? And to look at, at present trouble or stress and to say, um, you know, that, that, and to allow present difficulty or stress to erase our memory or our recall of the good. And so it's important that, that we reflected and looked on those things which are, in fact, good. And then we see that God uses all things to work for good, which means that we have to consider what is Bad And those things that we might be tempted to say, this is outside of things which are good for me. This, this doesn't fit into that box or that circle. This is obviously bad, obviously difficult. And therefore, what is God's role or place in it? Now, we looked last week at how the evil of affliction is overruled by God's power for good to the godly. We're going to take a look at another way in which that God overrules an evil in our lives for our good. But first we're going to read scripture and then we are going to pray. The scripture says this in Romans chapter 8 verse 27. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then? Shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to you for your word. Because there are things that we would not know or believe apart from your word. It is very easy to take our experiences and to sort them into piles. One on the right and one on the left. Uh, a pile of all of the bad things that have happened. And to say these are bad and should not have happened. And then the good things that, that we say these are, these are good and I wish more of those things would Happen, And then to try to sweep away the bad and to hold on to the good, it's easy to do that. But your word says that all 
things, both good and bad, work together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. As believers, we have an investment in the events of our life, and we therefore want to be careful, Lord. We want to be faithful to you, and we want to believe what your word says, because your word is true. We want, Father, for our hearts and minds to be open, that we might see how difficulty, how struggle, how affliction, how temptation is used by you for good in our lives. Not that evil ceases to be evil. Not that bad ceases to be bad, but that you take the bad and you use it for good in our lives. We pray that you would teach us and show us by your grace and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Temptation is defined as a desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. I like that. I think that's a good Webster's uh, dictionary definition. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what dictionary Google uses, but that is, if you search on temptation, that is definition number one. Uh, and, And probably more people go to Google then pick up a dictionary or go to Webster'sDictionary.com, right? Um, uh, Temptation is also defined as a thing or a course of action that attracts or tempts someone. Um, Temptation for the Christian is defined as well as the desire, right, to do something which violates a commandment or would harm us or cause us moral injury. Does that, does that make sense? That, that, that there, are, there are two ways of looking at this. One is a way of looking at temptation as something which is spiritually neutral, right? I am tempted to eat four candy bars, right? And that, in, in a secular mindset, could be that it's bad for my health, or that it's not good for my weight, which I'm watching, or that it is not good for uh, my, my blood, which I'm going to have to go get tested on this day. We can look at these things completely and utterly separated from a world in which God exists. When we discuss temptation as a Christian, we are admitting and acknowledging that there is a way in which God calls us to live, that he wants us to walk in a way that honors him, that expresses love towards others, and that walks in holy gratitude. Temptation calls us off course. It draws us in a direction that we should not go. Now, when we consider temptation, I don't think that anybody who has struggled or who has dealt with inward conflict would say, that's good. And I would agree with you that temptation is evidence that something is wrong with us, that our moral needle can't remain consistently fixed on always doing the right, that something draws us off course, right? That something fouls us up. Scriptures teach that God 
handles and uses temptation for our good. So we're going to take a look at that. The world promotes departing from God's way, and the flesh craves it. A third ingredient of temptation is that Satan is a tempter. We, as Christians, don't just believe that the world has a moral problem. And we don't just believe that we struggle and do wrong things. We believe that there is a true, real, spiritual enemy who desires to do us harm and who is at war with God. In the parable of the sower, where the word is sown... In a a symbol of, of seeds being cast out into the field, the devil is portrayed as a bird that comes and eats the truth, deceiving and leading people astray. Mark 4.15 says this, that when people hear... And the stone and the seed lands on the ground. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Satan is a deceiver. He wants to work against the truth. He wants to twist the truth in our minds. And he wants to lead us astray. So when we talk about temptation, I think it's important that we talk about the role of the devil in tempting. The scripture portrays Satan as a prowling lion in 1 Peter, that he walks around seeking whom he may devour. And if you've seen any nature documentaries, right, it always goes like this, right? That, that, the, that the herd of gazelles is there on the plain, right? But look, one of them has an injured leg, and he's fallen behind Right? He's, he's not keeping up with the pack. And now here comes the lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know? And then they always like, they keep cutting back from the lion to the gazelle. And they're like, the little gazelle has no idea what's going to happen. And then the lion's like, bang, on it. Right? Focusing. The lion focuses on the one that it can devour. Satan is a relentless tempter on patrol. I'd like to look quickly at his method in tempting, then his power, the the measure of it, what can he actually do, and then look at the ways in which God overrules temptation. This is is why I think it's important to focus on Satan here. Yes, we admit that the world has desires which are contrary to God. And we admit that, that we have cravings which are against what God would have for us. If we're honest, we would admit that we struggle. But Satan is there as the cheerleader, the inciter of sin, right? He is there saying, go ahead, Lay hold of that. Take it. And so it's important to understand his work. When we look at temptation first, we would see in the scriptures that Satan is violent with regard to temptation. Violent. He is described in scripture as a red dragon. Not just as a prowling lion, but as a vicious, horrific enemy. Revelation 12.3 says that a sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns. 
And his tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And if you recall the image, there is a woman who symbolizes Israel, who is about to give birth to Messiah, and the dragon patrols ready to consume the child. That is a picture of Satan's method and his posture. He is violent and ready to do battle at all times. Scripture defines the work of Satan this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, that he is one who throws flaming darts, right? I don't know about you, but if somebody's going to throw anything sharp and pointy at me, I'm getting nervous. And if it's on fire, right, I'm twice as nervous. And so we're told in Ephesians 6, 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith that you might extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. The devil is not just kind of hanging out on the fringes, whispering to us. No, he is assaulting regularly, seeking to turn us off course. The scripture also says that he is subtle in his temptation. He comes and whispers. He is violent, yes, and he is aggressive, but he also uses subtlety and cunning. The scriptures call him the ancient serpent, reflecting back on the original fall of humanity in the garden. How is Satan subtle? He's subtle in that he understands our temperament. He knows who we are. He tempts one person to dishonesty, and he tempts another person towards anger. He knows the right kind of bait to use. I don't know if you've ever, um, maybe you are a fisherman. I am not. I'm not really into, like, things that splash water around, you know, and hooks swirling. I've gone deep-sea fishing right where the guy, like, you know, puts the bait on the hook, and then he hands you the... The, the pole, and then you reel it in. I like that. That's, that's okay. But, you know, they don't just have one kind of bait. If the fish aren't biting, right, if they, you're going out searching for one kind of fish and they're not, they're not biting, they say, let's switch up the bait, let's go somewhere else, and let's catch something. Because the goal is catching, right? The goal isn't just to go out and, and catch one particular kind of fish. The goal is to keep the customer satisfied and get them back to shore with some fish. Satan's goal is destruction, and he uses all kinds of bait. He can't read our mind. He cannot know our innermost thoughts. But if you know anything about people, right, you're not nearly as ancient and practiced as the devil, but you know the people in your life, and you know their body language, and you know when something is wrong. You know when something is up. The devil knows as well, and he uses appropriate bait. He knows our temperament. He also studies the proper time to tempt. He tempts when we are in need. I've talked before about this acronym, right, HALT, that is used often in the recovery movement where they tell people, okay, you're about to make a decision that might be unwise. Ask yourself, am I hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? If so, probably not a good time to make that decision. Satan does the same thing. Have you ever noticed 
how easy it is to sin against other people when you're hungry or when you're angry suddenly like the the the, the, the temper is boiling and being polite and being nice to people that you love suddenly becomes very small. That's when the temptation to break the commandments of God comes with greater volume. We're also tempted, not just when we're physically limited, but we are often tempted in failure to lash out bad circumstances when we're embarrassed, give us an opportunity to give in, but we're also tempted in success, aren't we? The temptation to take the eye off of God and to trust him is evident in the parable of the the rich man who built bigger barns for himself. And he said, I'm successful. I'm going to have many years of ease and I'm going to do what I feel like. I'm just going to relax. God calls him a fool. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter was told by Jesus that he was blessed among men. He saw that Jesus was the Messiah, and he said so. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are blessed, Peter. God revealed this to you. He spoke to you. And Peter, I'm sure, strutted around and said, God spoke to me. He revealed this truth to me. I, of all the disciples and the apostles, I know the truth, right? And then what happens? The Bible says that Jesus began to say that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that that he was going to be rejected, that he was going to die. And Peter, who at this point is probably thoroughly convinced that he knows everything, Right? That he is the most blessed of all the disciples. He's like, no way, Lord, that is never going to happen to you. And it says he took Jesus aside. Imagine. Now we've read to the end of the story and we know everything about what's going on. We know Jesus is the son of God. We know that he's come from God and that he had a plan and he would be raised. But, you know, the audacity of Peter taking him aside as he began to rebuke him and said, this will never happen to you. He was tempted and demonstrated his foolishness in the middle of great success. Jesus called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, right? I'm sure the other disciples, if he strutted or taunted or did any, if he paraded himself around and displayed himself as better, I bet they loved that, right? Jesus takes the gold star away says, get behind me, Satan. In moments of great success, we can begin to coast. Satan will also employ friends and family, although often unwittingly, and when they have the best motives. Job's wife came to him in the middle of pain and suffering and said to him, do you still hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is his beloved wife. They had just gone through an amazing tragedy. The, the, the test of Job's character is evident. He needs to hold fast to the Lord at this point because we understand the scene. We know that Job is being tested and he's supposed to hold fast, but his wife says to him, God has abandoned you. He has cursed you. Curse him back and go to your grave. Was she... Attempting to be malicious and evil? 
I'm not sure. But she was close to him. A fourth way is that Satan tempts to evil using those who are good. Uh, in the movies, um, you ever notice when somebody wants to poison someone else, right? Like they don't, they don't put out a glass that says poison on it, you know? They put the poison in somebody's coffee because they want to drink coffee, right? They don't want to drink poison. And so they take something that's good and they put evil in it. They poison what somebody desires and wants. Satan will often tempt us to evil using things that are good or those who are good. Peter, again, as an example, had just demonstrated the success of Jesus' mission. The whole Gospel of Matthew up to the point of Matthew 16 is to establish his identity so that when people realize that he is Messiah, he can then go to the cross and die as Messiah. Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is a good thing. And then Jesus reveals the next phase of his plan, and Peter becomes an instrument of temptation to Jesus, and he rebukes him. Peter being good in the sense in which Jesus sees him has become an agent of possible temptation. Satan also likes to tempt us using the word, using our faith, using our duty. In Matthew chapter 4, what does Jesus do when confronted with the temptation that Satan brings against him? He resists and rebukes Satan using scripture, doesn't he? He says, it is written, and he sends him away. The next time that Satan tempts Jesus, it says he took him to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle, and he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down because it is written. And he now uses scripture against Jesus. Satan can use what is good, like scripture, like our faith, like our responsibilities. And because of his subtlety, he can twist those things and attempt to use them to undo us. And so we need to be careful, and we need to be aware of his schemes, as Paul says. The best antidote to being deceived by Satan in the word, and with our obligations and our responsibilities and our faith, is to know the word, and to know it in such a way that it cannot be twisted Against us. Let's look at the extent of his power. We've, we've looked at his method that he is violent and that he is subtle. Second, the extent of his power is this he will often point out the target of our temptation to us, right? He'll say, That's the thing that you want. You're after that. Go for that. When Achan after Jericho fell, Achan was tempted to steal the things that the Lord said were only for himself. He was tempted because he saw and he desired something illicit. The, the object was presented to his heart to be coveted. Now, 
when Jesus was tempted. Notice the timing here as well. Satan comes to him when he is at his weakest after 40 days of temptation. And then he points out the stones to him and says, you know that you could make these bread. He sets up the sin for him and points out the object. We believe that Satan can do that. He can also poison the intent and instill evil thoughts. He cannot read our mind. He cannot change our heart, but he can press home. And so we need to guard against him. The scripture says in John chapter 13, verse 2, that during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. He was there knocking, suggesting, pressing home. This idea that Jesus had failed, that he was not going to set up an earthly kingdom, that he was not going to come through, and that Judas needed to make a deal and save himself and sell Jesus, maybe for a position of power or something. We don't really know the root of it, but we know that the devil had put it into his heart. The idea had been introduced, and then it had been brought to life by Judas' own mulling and thinking about it. The devil, in his relentlessness, can excite, stir up, spin up temptation. First Chronicles 21, 1 Chronicles 21.1 said that in standing against Israel, Satan incited David to take a census. And a number of times, um, others had said to David, are we really going to do this? Doesn't the Bible tell us not to number Israel? It tells us not to, like get a bunch of horses and build big cities to defend our land, and we're not supposed to count how many warriors we've got. We're just not supposed to do that. David's like, number Israel, right? And I think it's Joab who says, really, are we going to do this? And David's like, yup, we're going to do it. Why? Because, because he had been incited. As believers, we have to guard our hearts and minds and make sure that we don't put ourselves on a path because the devil will continue to push and push and push and push us forward. He can do that. That is within his power. The good news, as Paul will say and we'll see in a moment, is that the word teaches us how he works and what his designs are and we can identify them and know them and detect them and then resist them with great strength. If temptation is evil, why does God allow it? If Satan has designs for our destruction, why does God permit him to continue to do what he does? I believe the answer to the first question is easy. The answer to the second one is we don't exactly know. Why? Satan does what he does. We don't know how he doesn't see the futility of what he's doing. But the answer to why God allows temptation in our lives is this. It's in Romans 8.28. This thing, though evil, works for our good. Because that is what scripture teaches us, that all things are worked together. All things are used for our good if we love God and are called according to his purpose. 
I had to confirm something, but I'd heard years ago that you know, uh, landscapers for a long time thought that they needed to stake trees to make them grow pretty and perfect, right? And so they would plant a tree and they'd stake it to protect it. Uh, and then what would happen is they would take all the stakes down and then high winds would come and the trees would fall right over. Right, and I'm like, is that true? And so I was looking it up last night, you know, making sure that I wasn't gonna say something that's wrong. But on some landscaping site, it says that many times trees that have been, have been protected like that with those stakes, you know, they grow uh, tall and strong, and then the landscaper will say, great, it looks good, and they'll take the stakes away, they'll take all the, the ties away, and the tree will slowly, steadily wilt and fall over. Why? Well, it never had to be tough. It never had to resist. It never had to do anything. It was protected completely and utterly. When a tree is left to its own, the roots need to grow deep in order to find water and find life and to build strength inside of itself. They dig in and they hold fast. And so when God allows trials to come into our lives, we'll talk about the intent of that in just a moment, it is for our good and for our strengthening and not for our destruction. Satan intends one thing, but the Lord intends another. Temptation sets us to praying, doesn't it? When you're tempted and you identify the temptation, you ask the Lord to deliver you, don't you? There's good in that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, it says, Paul pleaded with the Lord three times about it, that the temptation would go away. He prayed more because he was in temptation and not less. He appealed to the Lord, which is what we are called to do all the time, right? To live in dependence on God. He appealed to the Lord because he had a need. And so he pleaded with the Lord because temptation, which is bad, drove him to do something which is good, which is call upon the Lord. And the Lord answered him and taught him that God's grace would be sufficient for him that the thorn in his flesh, that the difficulty would not be taken away. Temptation drives us to prayer, and that is good. Second, temptation is a means to keep people from committing sin. You might say, what? No, temptation leads people to sin. Yeah, that's true, but temptation in and of itself is not sin, right? If I think, I'm feeling really tempted to tell this person what I think of them, right? I'm just going to tell you. You're lousy at what you do. You, know, you have no integrity. You're rotten. You're this. You're that. You're the worst human being that ever exists. And then I think, is that the way God wants me to behave? No. And then you resist that temptation. The ability to identify it and to, to resist it keeps us from committing sin. That makes sense, right? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and he said, no. It is written. He was moved by what Peter was saying. And he said, get behind me, Satan, because he was able to identify and move away from it. Temptation warns us and keeps us from some sins if we can identify them. Temptation also removes pride. Struggling with temptation 
resisting the desire for what's wrong humbles us. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says this. Paul says, To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I've been given. Think about it. Paul wrote uh, a majority of the books in the New Testament. He had tremendous visions from God. He had amazing things that he was given to do. He was set over a struggling church, and he was given a very difficult ministry, and it would have been very easy for him to say, I am the guy who God has called to build a church and get a big head. But this is what it says. Because of the surpassing greatness of these things, because of what I have been given, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. The proud believer, when he suffers temptation, has to turn his attention away from his own resources and turn to God in humble dependence And that brings humility. Thomas Watson says, Better is the temptation that humbles me than the duty that makes me proud. I read that and I think, No, I see it. Temptation. That's good. That helps. Temptation works for good as it's a reflection of what is in the heart. The devil tempts us. He puts bait on the hook, hoping that we will grab it and it will destroy us. The Lord allows temptation and creates opportunities for trial that he might prove what is in us. Our hearts reflect what we desire. And so as a believer, when we encounter temptation and we think, I want that, and I know that in order to get that, I need to step out of God's will and God's way and step over the line and reach for it, right? I need to go in that direction. It suddenly real, it reveals to us, this is what my heart wants and desires. And then we're able to say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I should be pursuing or running after this. It reveals what's in the heart. Do we have a heart that caves in the face of temptation? Or have we committed our hearts to Christ in that we have the resolve to fight back against temptation? Is our heart his Or is our heart what rules us? Does it it rule us in terms of our desire or does it rule us in terms of our devotion to Christ? Temptation reveals the weak points. Now the advice of scripture from Ephesians chapter 6 is this. Paul says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Arm yourself. Take up the shield of faith and fight back and be bold. I have counseled and talked to people who say, I'm tempted to do this. And as I'm trying to figure out what's going on in them, you know, many times I'll say like, do you feel bad because you're tempted? Is that you're you're suffering and struggling with temptation? You're resisting it. Do you feel bad because of that? And they they, well, yeah. And I'm like, no, that's evidence of something good. Right? If you, if, if, if you were just throwing yourself into sin and had no discernment of the struggle and you weren't resisting and fighting, that's evidence of something entirely different. Temptation, fought, is evidence of success, not of failure. 
We're told to take up the shield of faith and extinguish the fiery darts. The Christian is noble when he walks out onto the battlefield and fights the tempter and the dragon. Not when he surrenders. We are always in spiritual battle. From the time that we are born again to the time that we meet the Lord Jesus. And so when we face and endure trials, we are demonstrating dependence on the Lord and it confirms the grace of God at work in our lives. Temptation works for good because those who have been tempted can encourage and help others. Imagine if you had no struggles and someone came to you for help and said, I'm struggling with this, and you couldn't say, yeah, I know what that feels like. Imagine if you were struggling with temptation and you turned to somebody else and said, hey, I'm struggling with this, and they say to you, yeah, I don't know. You must be some kind of freak, right? Because I've never struggled a day in my life. No, it is good and helpful to find others and to say, you know what, I'm battling with this. I'm, 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 I'm trying to work through this. And for them to say, you know what, here's how I resist it. Here's what I do. Proverbs 15, 23 says this, to make an apt answer is joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. When someone says, I know exactly what that feels like, doesn't that feel good? Isn't that comforting when somebody says, I can help you with that. I've experienced that. I have dealt with it. Paul is the one who says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, as he's instructing the Corinthians, he says that he's talking and teaching them so that, he would not be, so that they would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, he says. Right? I know his schemes. I know the way that he works. And so Paul instructs. Paul, who had struggled and suffered and wrestled with temptation, is able to say to the Corinthians, because he has tried in his own experience and because he knows that they need comfort, he says this to them, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This didn't just fall out of heaven on some slip of paper that he found. This is an expression of his experience as the Holy Spirit moves him in his understanding of what it means to endure temptation. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he's going to provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. Think about it. Paul didn't just spin that out and make it up on the spot. He lived that. And because he lived it, because God used temptation in his own life as an instrument for good, to accomplish good, the good of the church and the good of believers who would follow after, we were able to receive that word from God. Someone who has survived a difficult experience is often the best one to guide us in avoiding that experience ourselves, aren't they? The best tutor for this fight is one who has actually fought Satan. Temptations work good in that they stir up the father heart of God. I think about the passage of scripture where 
Hagar has run away. She has been sent away by Abraham and her son is dying and she feels completely and utterly bereft and abandoned and an angel speaks to her. She discovers water sent to her by God and it says that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar lived within the community of Abraham, God's friend, the one who was in part of, this was the one who was at the center of God's plan. He was, he was a key man in bringing Messiah into the world. He was the one who God chose and who he was leading and blessing. And it took being driven out and being in need for her to identify the fact that God was caring for her. She discovered the heart of God for her in the middle of struggle and difficulty. And so when we are tempted and tried, when we are struggling, there have been times when the anger has burned so strong and so great in me. And I have said, Lord, you are going to have to deliver me or I am going to do something insanely stupid. Right? Even if you don't say, yeah, right, you know, I know, I know, I know. But to be able to then say, I'm just going to count to 10 and then realize an hour later, that the explosion had never come. I mean, I'm not, I'm not accounting that to the, the lack of explosion to any like supernatural power in those numbers, right? It, it reveals to me that I called upon my father and I asked for help and he gave it. He delivered me from that sin, that the spirit was there and moved and helped and diverted me from what seemed like the logical, rational path. I was an inch away from exploding. I say, Lord, Help me. And then I realize I have been helped because God comes to those who call upon him in need. That's what he promises. When do we discover that God is that kind of God? When we're in intense need and we call out to him when he delivers us. I love those kinds of experiences because It'll just be, it'll, you know, I'll be going about my business and I'll suddenly realize he saved me just then. He delivered me and it just, the emotions just hit, you know? Like, I asked, as the scriptures say, this poor man cried, you heard my voice and you delivered me. We see the one who looks after us. Temptations make the saints long for heaven. Paul realizes the difficulty and the strain and the pain of going through life. And he said that his desire was to depart and to be with Christ. He wanted to go and to be delivered from all that he struggled with. But he knew that he needed to remain for the time being. If we never experience difficulty, we will never look forward to being delivered from it. Finally, Temptations engage the strength of Christ. When we are tempted, we call upon the Lord for deliverance. We call upon the Spirit for 
power. What the scriptures say is happening is that Jesus is there and he is working through us and for us. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When we struggle and we say, Lord, deliver me, The scriptures teach us that Jesus is there helping us overcome. That his power is evident in us, that he is present with us, that he is working in our experience. We may find ourselves in the middle of difficult situations. We may find ourselves contemplating different things because of temptation, the desire that has come upon us. But listen to what the scriptures say. Romans 8, 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, will these things separate us? And then Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When we are tempted and we struggle and we look to God, The very power of the Spirit, the presence of Christ living within us is embraced and engaged. And we are not failures. We are successful. Thomas Watson has said this. If the devil truly knew all that the Christian gathered to himself through temptation he would cease to use it as a weapon. If the devil knew what God was accomplishing in our lives through temptation resisted, he would stop. Now, I cannot speak for Satan. Um, My job description uh, says that that's not good. So I don't know, I don't know, why he does what he does. I don't get it. I'm like, man, read the book. You're not going to win. Quit, right? You know? But he doesn't. And so since he will not stop, it is important for the believer to embrace what the scriptures say about what God is accomplishing in us and to walk forward knowing that God is overruling and shepherding and changing us as we experience temptation. In closing, Martin Luther said this, there are three things that make a Christian. Prayer, meditation, and temptation. It tests our resolve. It tests our dedication and our devotion. If you are here and you are struggling with a battle, a constant, ongoing difficulty, let me say this. If you're not a believer, the Lord desires to help you. He created you to live in dependence on him and to be able to resist and to triumph over temptation. And so if you've not put your faith and trust in Christ, I would urge you to do that. And if you are a Christian and you are struggling with temptation and you just feel awful about that, know this, our Lord himself was tempted and the Bible describes him as without sin. It is no sin to struggle with temptation. It is a sin to sin. And so I just want to urge you to reach out 
to ask someone for help. You want to talk to me? That's fine. I'm more than happy to do that. The Lord has made it so that we can be, as he says, conquerors in the midst of the things that afflict us. God will accomplish great things in you and through you as you engage and embrace this battle if you do it in his strength and consistent with the way that he has designed it to work. And so lay hold of him and the truth of scripture. Let's pray as we close. Father, I thank you for your grace and kindness toward us. Many times we can feel like a failure because we have succumbed to temptation in the past. But the scripture says that your grace is sufficient for us, that our, your power is perfected in our weakness. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you don't require perfection from us to be saved, but instead you provide perfection in Jesus. And Lord, I pray if there is anyone here this morning who is struggling with a battle as a non-believer, somebody who, who says, I don't know if God loves me, I pray that they would reach out and understand the truth of the gospel, that you give forgiveness and you give purity. You love and accept others as your children even if they don't deserve it and to the believer who struggles I pray that you would encourage them to reach out because they are not different because they struggle I pray that they would ask so that they could understand that you are faithful that you provide the way of escape that you never tempt beyond what we're able to endure and Father, I pray that today would be a day of renewed victory and joy in you as they see your plan and your hand in what they are struggling with. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together. Amen.